Our Father and our God, we do treasure Lord Jesus Christ and the promise that he brings to us. For in Jesus Christ we find our redemption. In Jesus Christ we find that our insufficient righteousness is just simply demolished in favor of the righteousness of Jesus. And we praise you, Father, that the promise is that we would be remade in the image of our Lord Jesus Christ as we trust in you. And so, Father, now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be acceptable this morning in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. James Montgomery Boyce imagines the following scenario. It was the Vietnam War. A platoon of American soldiers was captured, and they were taken to a POW camp in North Vietnam. The Red Cross becomes aware of the platoon and their internment, and they are allowed to visit, and the men are identified, and the government and their families are, are informed. And the Red Cross verifies that the men are more or less okay. And once the family and friends of the men know of their circumstances, they begin to, to send them things through the Red Cross. And of course, the North Vietnamese monitor what comes in. They don't allow everything to come in like that. But one of the things that does come through to these men is a game of Monopoly. The thinking was that these men sitting in a POW camp with time on their hands might like to, to occupy their time by playing Monopoly. Monopoly is a time-consuming game. A game seems like it's endless sometimes. Now, I realize that this scenario as I describe it sounds a little bit more like Hogan's Heroes than the Vietnam War, but look, it's a sermon illustration. Just go with it, okay? Anyway, the men are thrilled to receive the game of Monopoly, but not for the reasons that the senders imagined. They, they pitch the game, actually, but they take the Monopoly money and they distribute it among the platoon. And the Monopoly money becomes the currency for their underground black market camp economy. And so if somebody needed a cigarette, that might cost $5 in Monopoly money. Or if somebody wanted somebody else to cover their latrine duty, that might have to cost something like $50 in Monopoly money. And so the whole camp economy then cruised along swimmingly using Monopoly money as their common currency. Now, of course, in a free market economy like this one, even though all the money was distributed evenly at first, the market forces take over. Uh, personal likes and dislikes drive the sales and the purchase, of, uh, and the purchase decisions, and eventually there, there are a few who are talented capitalists in the bunch. They work at buying low and selling high, and after some time, a few of them accumulate wealth and in the end have lots more Monopoly money than the others. Now, one of the men in particular in this platoon has been quite successful. 
Well, finally, good news comes. A prisoner exchange has been arranged, and and the entire platoon has been exchanged for a a bunch of North Vietnamese prisoners, and the platoon is released, and and within days, they're returned stateside, and they're greeted with a hero's welcome. Again, use your imagination here, okay? The man who had accumulated the lion's share of money in the camp then comes back to his hometown. And one of his first stops is his hometown bank. The banker was delighted to see him. He greeted him warmly, assured him that he had been thinking and praying for him frequently, knowing of his circumstances. They they chatted for many things for a while, and then eventually they got down to business. The banker says, how can I help you? And the soldier says, well, I'd, I'd like to make a deposit. The banker says, great, how much would you like to deposit? And the soldier says, about a half a million dollars. The banker's eyes lit up. He he hadn't realized the man had those kinds of assets. Uh, And and, local banks love deposits like that. And the banker says, well, that's great. Let let me see see what you've got. And and the soldier lays out $500,382 in Monopoly money. Security! Now, this illustrates the human condition marvelously, actually, because in this life, you see, we have developed a moral economy in which a certain kind of righteousness uh, becomes our common currency. Everybody in this life has some level of righteousness, but but not everybody has the same amount, and, and variations in the level of this righteousness helps us navigate much of life's relationships. We make economic decisions on the basis of this righteousness. Who can we, we trust to do business with? We make relationship decisions on the basis of this, this righteousness. But, but sooner or later, all of us end up going to meet God. God who is the cosmic banker. God who is the president of the first bank of the kingdom. The first and only bank of the kingdom, by the way. And we want to make a deposit. And we bring to God our righteousness. But to God, our righteousness is no better than monopoly money. And the cosmic banker shakes his head and calls security. Our lack of understanding about what constitutes true righteousness, the kind of righteousness that works in the divine economy, is horrifyingly deficient among us humans. Our own righteousness, the kind that seems to work in the black market economy of of the human enterprises of this world, is, is of no value in the divine economy, and we show up on eternity's doorstep with nothing more than play money. And that's what Paul has been trying to communicate in these early portions of the book of Romans. He's talked, first of all, about truth suppression. He indicated that everyone has knowledge about God. God's nature and character are on display in the world that God has created so that no one could possibly miss his eternal power and divine nature, which have been clearly seen. But human beings don't like the idea of an eternally powerful and divine being, so we suppress the truth about God. But since the truth about God has been revealed to everybody and is plain to everybody, everybody is without excuse. But that never stopped anybody from making excuses. 
We all make excuses. That's what human beings do. You remember that when I uh, preached upon that a few weeks ago, I called human beings homo excusionatum factorum. Human beings, the excuse makers. Some have a moral excuse. They say, no, 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 we're really good. That's the excuse that many of the Gentiles would use as well as many Jews. Uh, Paul pretty easily dispenses of that notion both the Jew and the Gentile fail in presuming that they are morally good. Others use a religious excuse. We have this special relationship with God. This is the excuse that the Jewish people would have used, who claim to have this special covenantal relationship with God. But not even the Jews measure up to their covenantal responsibilities. So Paul disposes of that issue, that excuse as well, in chapter 2 of Romans. Then Paul deals with the issue of religious privilege. What's the point then of being religious? He, he asks, what's the point of our Jewishness? And Paul shows that while there is much privilege in being Jewish, especially that the Jews have the word of God, if you were to presume upon that privilege, you've missed the point of genuine religion. And Paul thus demonstrates that both Jew and Gentile alike are under sin and are liable for the judgment of God. Both the moral righteousness of the Gentile and the religious righteousness of the Jew are just monopoly money. And that leads us to chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, which is our text this morning. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to read with it. Verse 9 says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written... None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God." For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. You know, we're so used to medical models these days, and so in keeping with that tradition, we'll observe that there are essentially only three views of human nature from a moral perspective. One view is that human beings are well, that we are essentially good, that morally we are healthy people. If there are problems, it's because we're corrupted by our environment. It's not really us. We are good people. The second view is that human beings are not well but sick. We have good days and bad days. Many of you can relate to that. But most of the time we're fine, morally speaking, but there are occasional chinks in our armor, occasional illnesses that pop up from time to time. If we could just figure out the right medicine, we would be kept on an even key, keel morally. And then the third view of human nature is that human beings are dead. 
not actually physically dead, but morally and spiritually dead, uh, that there is no moral life left in us, no moral heartbeat, no moral brainwaves. Most people, by the way, believe in the first of these views of human nature, that humans are well and basically good and only corrupted by our environments. Somewhat more realistic, however, is a second view. Many people believe that human beings are sick, certainly in need of moral and medical intervention. But there is some spiritual life to work with. But nobody seems to believe that human beings are morally dead, except the Bible. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead in trespasses and sins. In Christian theology, this latter view has come to be known as total depravity. It's really not the best name for it because that implies that human beings are as bad as they can possibly be, that we are utterly depraved or completely depraved, But those who actually teach this doctrine don't really believe that human beings are as bad as we can possibly be. As bad as we are, none of us probably equates to Adolf Hitler, for instance. As one theologian put it, who teaches the doctrine of total depravity or taught before he went to be with the Lord, he said, human beings are still capable of deprovement. In other words, we can always imagine being worse than we are. Nevertheless, dead in trespasses and sins is awfully definitive. R.C. Sproul proposed a better term for this issue. He preferred radical depravity. And that's really, he really chose that term because R.C. loved Latin. And the word radical has a Latin phrase uh, for uh, the root of this word, and uh, really R.C. had a Latin phrase for about everything. Because the reason he liked radical depravity is because the word radical comes from the Latin root radix, and radix means root. He liked it because he recognized that our depravity goes to the very core, the very root of the human personality that no part of our human being is exempt from moral decay, that our minds are affected, that our wills are affected, that our emotions are affected, that there is no corner of our hearts, no hidden closet of our being which is free from corruption. Every, Every human faculty, morally speaking, is dead. Well, let's see if if that is true by looking at this text. Note that first, the radical character of the words that are used in our text. There is none righteous. None righteous. No, not one. That's the moral dimension. No one understands. That's the mental or the cognitive dimension. No one seeks for God. That's the the volitional dimension or the dimension of the will. All have turned aside. That's the dimension of desires and, and inclinations. They have become worthless. That is the creative dimension. They create nothing of lasting value. No one does good, not even one. That's the behavioral dimension. There's no fear of God before their eyes. That's the emotional dimension. So every conceivable faculty of the human person is infected by sin. Our moral lives, our mental lives, our wills, our desires, our creativity, our behavior or conduct, our emotions, they are all involved. 
And then there is the universality of sin. All human beings are affected, no exceptions. None are righteous, no one understands. All have turned aside, no one does good, not even one. So when we speak of radical depravity, we say that sin is universal, that is all people are affected, and that sin is pervasive, that every aspect of the human personality is corrupted. By the way, that's not a new concept in the New Testament. It goes all the way back to Genesis. Genesis 6, verse 5, the text says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. James Boyce comments and says, Genesis 6-5 teaches that sin is internal, rising from the thoughts and intentions of the heart, pervasive, affecting our every intention so that our deeds are only evil and continuous. That is operating all of the time. And then Paul gives us an anatomy lesson to illustrate this. He uses a series of Old Testament quotations. He says, their throat is an open grave. Quoting Psalm 5, verse 9. They use their tongues to deceive, he says. The venom of asps is under their lips, referring to Psalm 140, verse 3. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, uh, echoing Psalm 10, verse 7. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. They echo Proverbs 1:16 and Isaiah 59, 7 and 8. There is no fear of God before their eyes, uh, alluding to Psalm 36, verse 1. Th- this visual representation is remarkable, is it not? From head to foot, depravity encompasses the whole person. And the nature of this anatomy is remarkable. The first four elements of this anatomy of depravity are organs of speech, throat, tongues, lips, and mouth. Jesus said in Matthew 12, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Speech is the means by which our hearts affect other people. The throat is said to be an open grave, a repository of death. We were all taught, were we not, sticks and stones may break your bones, but words will never hurt you. How many of you had a mother who taught you that? It was not your mother's finest hour. Because you know that that's false now, but I can tell you that the words won't hurt you, the words will kill you. Tongues are used to deceive, the text tells us, instruments of deception. The lips have venom or poison in them, an insidious means of destruction. The mouth is full of curses and bitterness. That's the means by which we express hatred toward God and others. Now I have to say, dear friends, you don't have to look far to see evidence of this kind of radical depravity. Our speech reveals it. And it reveals it, quite honestly, right here in this community. The speech that I've been hearing right here at Shell Point is a case in point, because I've heard a good bit of it recently. It comes through the grapevine to me. You know about the grapevine, do you not? The grapevine is alive and well at Shell Point. I usually don't get it directly, but eventually I get it. And a lot of the speech is directed at Shell Point. 
But that's no big deal for us, is it? Because Shell Point's just a corporation. We're allowed to talk ill of a corporation. Except that all of the senior leadership at Shell Point is made up of brothers and sisters in Christ. And every member of the board of directors at Shell Point is made up of brothers and sisters in Christ. I've heard all kinds of speech in recent months, accusations against those brothers and sisters, accusing them of sinning in the decisions that they make. I've heard threats, if they do this, then we'll do. I've heard of people repeating rumors. I've heard of people who have attributed motives to our brothers and sisters, which is amazing to me. I don't know how anybody could have known the motives of these people. I've never had that gift of being able to look inside a heart of a human being. I've heard people who state opinions as if they were facts. I've heard just general complaining. I've heard scripture twisting, in which people misapply scriptures to try to make points that are invalid. And for what I've heard, some of it is coming from believers, from other brothers and sisters in Christ. So what does the scripture say about that? Listen to me, dear friends. If you truly believe that a brother or sister is sinning, what are you supposed to do about that? Go tell your friends at the crystal. Okay, maybe the blend is better. Or maybe it's okay to just send out a mass email or throw it up on Facebook. What are you supposed to do if you really believe a brother or sister is sinning? Well, Jesus has some thoughts about that. He says in Matthew 18 quite explicitly, if you believe your brother or sister is sinning, you're to go to that person and present your evidence of sinning just between the two of you. And if they're convinced and repent, praise the Lord. You've won your brother. But if not, and you're still convinced that they're sinning, then you are to take a witness, someone else who can go with you and also present evidence of their sinning. And if that doesn't work, then you take it to the the elders. And if you bring it to us, to the elders, then we'll investigate and we'll have a trial. That's what you're supposed to do if you believe your brother is sinning. Now, you better be careful then if you're going to accuse your brother of sinning because that's the process, not my process. That's what Jesus says you're supposed to do. So you better be serious if you want to accuse your brothers and sisters of sin. That's what you should do. Now, maybe it's going too far to talk about sin. Maybe you just don't like what your brothers and sisters have decided to do. So you wouldn't have done it that way if you'd have been in charge but you don't like it, okay? You can still express yourself and you can do it again just between the two of you. Or you can also do it in the context of the opportunities that Shell Point frequently provides for you to express yourself appropriately. You can do that. Or you can just complain and tell everybody you know how angry you are. It's okay to complain, right? How'd that work out for Israel in the wilderness? How'd God feel about Israel complaining in the wilderness? I remember the first time that Gene and I went to the wilderness. Our first trip to Israel. And we saw goats eating rocks. 
Now, I'm sure they weren't eating rocks, but that's the only thing we could see that they could eat. It's so destitute, such lack of water. And when we saw the wilderness, Gene's reaction was, no wonder they complained. Made perfect sense that they complained. It's a wilderness. What a miserable set of conditions. But how did God feel about their complaining? He left their bodies there. No promised land for them. May I make an observation to you this morning? You are not in the wilderness. You're not in the wilderness. On Shell Point's worst day, you're not in the wilderness. How about we make sure that we don't become object lessons for radical depravity, okay? Instead, let's do what the scriptures say to do. Like Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good is good for building up. As fits the occasion, listen, that it may give grace to those who hear. Isn't that our standard? It's a free country, you can say anything you want, but you're a believer in Jesus. Give grace to those who hear. You know, it's no accident that in Paul's exposition of radical depravity, speech is prominent. And that's where he starts. The next three elements in his anatomy lesson speak of our actions, our feet, our path, our way. That's the course of action we take, which he describes as murderous, destructive, ruinous, and misery. Anything but peaceful. And then finally, he mentions our emotions. No fear of God. So every dimension of our human nature is included in this anatomy lesson of depravity. Our words, our actions, our emotions are a cesspool of death, Paul says. I can already hear the objections. We all know good people, people who generally do good things. Many of them aren't even believers in Jesus. They do good things. But remember, God looks on the heart, and he considers motives. And he's not impressed with enlightened self-interest. As useful as that might be in maintaining a civil society, that doesn't impress God. That's like monopoly money. We also know people who are seeking, quote-unquote, but are they seeking God or are they seeking just the benefits that only God can provide? We hide from God even though we love to have his benefits. Our problem in understanding this doctrine of radical depravity is how often we have been operating on an earthly plane based upon our own supposed human goodness and righteousness without having a clue about God's requirements and God's righteousness. We've been playing with monopoly money. It's a pretty dismal picture of the human condition, isn't it? It's not the only place, by the way, that Paul speaks of it. I mentioned Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. People are dead 
and sin and trespasses apart from the grace of God. And what can dead people do? What can dead people do? Absolutely nothing. Back in my university days, I, I taught behavioral psychology. And one of the things that I taught was the definition that the textbooks had of behavior. And one of the definitions was, behavior is anything a dead man can't do. <laughs> Paul says in Romans chapter 8, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the flesh, and those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those are statements of ability. There's a fundamental moral inability in the human person in the spiritual realm. We are like zombies, the walking dead. Now that's Paul. Okay, he's a killjoy. We hate Paul. We love Jesus, right? All right. What does Jesus say about the human condition? He says that if you are salt, but if you lose your saltiness, you're no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. He says that the diseased tree bears bad fruit, and he calls us those trees. He says in Luke 11, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to, to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? He calls you evil. In Mark 7, he says, for from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. Jesus said there's no one good except God alone. Jesus said that which is born of flesh is flesh. He says you refuse to come to me. He says in John 5, you do not have the love of God within you. He says in John 5 as well, you do not receive me. He says in John 5, if you, you do, uh, you, if you do not believe his writings, that is the writings of Moses, how will you believe my words? He says in John chapter 7, uh, that its works of the world are evil and that's what you follow. He says in John chapter 7 verse 19, none of you keeps the law. He says in John chapter 8 verse 21, you'll die in your sin. He says in John 8, 23, you are from below, I'm from above. You are of this world, I'm not of this world. He says a little bit later, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he's a liar and the father of lies and he says, that's your daddy. That's who you follow. He says, you're not of God in chapter 8. That's Jesus. Paul didn't say anything Jesus didn't say, and Jesus said it louder. So now we come to the concluding portion of the text, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight 
since through the law comes knowledge of sin. When the radical nature of human corruption is revealed before God, every mouth will be silenced. You'll be like Job. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Be like Isaiah. Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Be like Habakkuk. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. That's what happens when radical depravity is revealed. And that's where people need to be before they genuinely come to Jesus Christ. That we need to have our radical depravity revealed. And we need to have our mouths shut. And then we can see the glory of the love of God in Jesus Christ. Donald Gray Barnhouse told a story of an occasion that he had in one of his messages. There was a man that used to laugh at his messages in his church. And he claimed that his righteousness was good because he used to work doing charitable things at his lodge and all that was sufficient. Well, the man took ill and was in the hospital and he was dying. And Barnhouse visited him. And Barnhouse records the visit this way. He said to the man, you don't mind my staying here for a few minutes and watching you, do you? I've often wondered what it would be like for a person to die without Jesus Christ. He said, I've known you for quite a few years. And you've always said that you do not need Christ and that your lodge obligations are enough. He said, I would like to observe a person end his life with those beliefs and see what it's like. The man on the bed was struck through the heart. He looked at Barnhouse uh, like a wounded animal. You, You wouldn't mock a dying man, would you? Barnhouse then asked his diagnostic question. Are you going to appear before God? Are you going to appear before God in a short while? Suppose he asks you, what right do you have to come into my heaven? What will you say? This time the man looked back in agonized silence. And great tears flowed from his frightened eyes and down his pale, wrinkled cheeks. And then while he listened attentively, Barnhouse told him how he might approach God through the merits of Jesus Christ. The man replied that his mother had taught him those truths as a child, but he had abandoned them. He had lived without faith. But now in his final moments on earth, he came back to God through Jesus Christ, confessed his faith in him, and then had someone call his family members so that he might give his newfound testimony to them. And he asked Barnhouse to tell his story at his funeral which took place a few days later. It's not too late if you're still awake. Every mouth will be silenced when the radical depravity of our nature is revealed. And dear friends, it's better to be silenced while you have breath on this earth than to wait until you meet God in the hereafter. Our Father and our God, Reveal to us 
the depths of our depravity so that we might cast ourselves on the mercy of Jesus Christ who loved us so much that he gave himself up for us, died on the cross so that we would not have to experience the death of eternity. And he grants us his saving grace by the spirit of the living God, giving us new life in him. Oh God, do that, even in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen.